According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews again this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. And we are looking at verses um, 7 and 8. And we're looking at verse 9. We are uh, talking about how our Savior was humbled how He came down. Uh, He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but He has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember Him, or the Son of Man that you are concerned about Him? You have made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor and have appointed Him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. And so we've covered much of this already. We're going to tie together a couple of loose ends, and then we'll be able to recognize that um, this hasn't happened yet. In subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, that is presently, for you and I today in the church age, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. We are living in the earnest expectation and hope that uh, His kingdom is coming, that a day is coming when indeed He will return, when He will take His seat on the throne of David, when His enemies will be made a footstool, when all things will be put in subjection under His feet. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, He's ready for it, but we're not. The bride is still being suited for Jesus. And uh, that subjection will happen when He takes a bride and when He comes to reign. So we want to be clear on that as well. All right. Well, what do we see? Verse 9. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And we want to uh, chew on that a bit here today as well. In preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking for the Father's blessing upon our time to take hold of our thinking, to lead us in the truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank You for God the Holy Spirit that permanently indwells every church-age believer. We thank You for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And Father, as we uh, confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I thank You on that basis then, Father, we can be filled, we can be cleansed, we can be vessels for honor, prepared for every good work. And that includes this, this good work. Father, as we present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We want to do so in fellowship. We want to do so in humility that we might receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. So Father, whatever it is that's going to hinder the teaching this morning, clear it away. Whatever distractions, clear it away. Hedge us about and protect us. Whatever sin, whatever sin struggles, whatever, uh, whatever those things might be, Father, uh, motivate us to confess those and be done with them so that we might, uh, in fellowship with you and with your Son, Father, we might receive the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, and so as we have been, I think now looking at verses 6 through 8, 
if I get my slide up here. Um, one has testified somewhere saying, all right? So if you ever forget a Bible verse, that's fine. You just know what the verse says, even if you don't know where it might be located. This one happens to come from Psalm 8. One has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him. The point being is there is a future exaltation of humanity. And that future exaltation of humanity will take place. Not the angels, man. That he did not subject to angels. We're still in the first two chapters where we're talking about the humility of angels. They have an eternal destiny of subjection. They are going to be diminished for all eternity. Presently, they're beings of glory and power. But they have an eternal destiny of diminishment. You and I are humble creatures that have an eternal destiny of glory. It goes the opposite direction, see? And that's what we keep stressing again and again and again. Christ lowered himself, and we don't ever want to forget that. And so, uh, verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we're speaking. If you ever get lost and can't figure out what we're speaking about, the author of Hebrews does a pretty good job every now and then saying, all right, now the the main point in what has been said is this, okay? That's how chapter 8 begins. And he does something similar here. Uh, this is what we're talking about. The world to come is not being subjected to the angels, all right? The angels have been sent forth to render service to those who will inherit salvation. Uh, Jesus was lowered, and that's what it's all about. That's why Old Testament prophecy speaks to this. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? We have Psalm 8, which forms the core text for uh, the Hebrews' exaltation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, or in the New Heavens and in the New Earth. And we have this question. By the way, it's not, not limited to Psalm 8. It comes back again in Psalm 144. It was even used in Job, in Job 7, 17. What is man? The recognition that angels are a higher order of being. They're beings of light, of power, of glory. And yet it's man that God is concerned with. It's man that he pays attention to. It's man that he tests morning by morning and day by day. And so he shows his concern for us when he tests us. That was part of Job's lament in Job chapter 7. All right. And then we get to the uh, little while lower than the angels in verse 7. Hebrews 2 7 says, You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And we have an expression here that's an interpretation and a translation from Psalms, where if you go back and you read Psalm 8, let's look at that, Psalm 8 4. Hold your finger there, and we'll go back to Psalm 8 4. Compare them side by side. Easier to do if you're using Logos Bible software, and you can put them up in side by side windows. But here I am with my paper. Bible technology. All right, Psalm 8. And uh, verse 4 says, let me just back up a little bit. This is a glorious psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From them, uh, So there's a contrast there, right? Above the heavens? I mean, how much, what, what is it that's going to contain God's glory? And yet it's the earth that he's selected to show, to spotlight a particular aspect of his splendor. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And so in the wisdom of God, he put forth a plan where the, 
weakest of creatures. Humanity is going to resolve angelity. And humanity with its weakness, with its offspring, with its babies, even the mouth of babes is going to be able to testify to God's grace. You realize when a little child gets saved and they testify to Jesus as their Savior, do you know how crushing that is for the fallen angels? The, uh, those that rejected God's grace. And here is a little human child that can testify. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, it's just finger work. The delicate little finger work of embroidery. It's the galaxies in the universe, the creation of the whole physical universe is described as finger work. Pretty simple, right? In contrast with the work of the hand, the work of the arm, it's by his right arm that he has redeemed us. That's, that's the real work. The work of redemption is to a whole lot more than creating a universe. Um, so the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? All right, so there's something that's happening here where man is spotlighted and son of man is spotlighted, okay? And it's a beautiful metaphor and it's used in a couple of different ways. Yes, we get the fact that from generation to generation, Yahweh is Yahweh. I am is I am. And God is God from generation to generation. So he was faithful to my grandfather. He was faithful to my father. He's faithful to me. He's going to be faithful to my son. All right, that's how God works. Beyond that, and that, that, that too is, is a thrill, because angels don't have the generations like you and I have, like humanity has the generations. But beyond that, man and son of man. Now there's a spotlight that's being focused on this character we call the son of man. All right? And then when we get to the New Testament, we find out who this is. This is Jesus claims this title over and over and over again. And he makes them angry. But it's used in the prophets, it's used in the Psalms, it's used in Daniel. The Son of Man came and was presented before the Ancient of Days. That Son of Man language is with reference to the Messiah, to the Christ. That God Himself becomes flesh and dwells among us. That God becomes a man so that He can save us. And so Son of Man references the promise of the coming Christ, that you care for Him. Now in verse 5, you have made Him a little lower than God. And that's why I say we have a translation issue we have to deal with. The translation God is not wrong as a translation, but it is one of a couple of different options that we have to deal with. And when the author of Hebrews then brings it into Greek and, teach, and, and records it in Hebrews chapter 2, he makes the correct translation to render this as the angels. It becomes a theological translation more than a linguistic translation. You have made him a little lower than the Elohim, is what we have in the Hebrew, the Elohim. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All right. And it goes on, verses 7, 8, and 9. We'll let that go for this morning. I just want to focus, though, on the Elohim. And if you've never been taught this before, if this is your first time to see it, then it might jump out at you and might seem kind of strange. And maybe you've, you've never seen that before, right? But this is what we're dealing with. Hebrews 2, 7, which is a direct quotation out of the Septuagint, by the way. Septuagint used angeloi, angels, in uh, Hebrews there, whereas the, Greek had, or the Hebrew had Elohim. Hebrews 2.7 provides God's translation and interpretation of Psalm 8.5. The Elohim are the gods, plural, of Psalm 8. 
Those Elohim are the Angeloi angels destined to serve creatures who will one day be exalted. All right? The angels are destined to serve creatures who will one day be exalted. The angels are designed to serve us. They're presently exalted, but they're designed to serve those that will be future exalted while they themselves become diminished. All right. And so this is what we're looking at. And hopefully you've had this before. If not, you've never had this. Uh, you'll, it'll make sense to you today. But we have this term Elohim. And of all the names for God, from Yahweh to Adonai to El Shaddai to, you know, pick your favorite names for God in the Old Testament. But Elohim uh, is among the most common, all right? And Elohim is itself a noun, a plural noun. And it's a plural noun that can be used as a plural noun regularly for God's plural. Or it's also a proper name that's used specifically of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And so uh, that might be awkward for us, but the sooner we understand it, the better. Okay, And it's, it's pretty easy to spot in Hebrew, even though it's the same Elohim either way. It's easy to spot in Hebrew because of the words around it and how it's used. Okay, and so we have no, no issues there. And so this is what we're looking at. The, uh, the im ending is the plural, masculine plural ending, right? El is singular or Eloah is singular. Either El or Eloah, they're both pluralized with the im ending, Elohim. So it's plural, the gods, okay? And um, he is the God of gods, Elohim. He is the, uh, there are the nations and their gods will not stand before him, all right? When uh, they're told to come out from among them and be ye separate, they're told to be separated from the peoples so that they don't serve those, those other nations and their gods, their Elohim, all right? So it's just a basic word for God, but it's used in the plural, the gods, so the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Moabites, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Canaanites, and so forth, where Elohim is clearly a plural noun. But, the, but we have the plural use and the singular use, because sometimes Elohim, even though it's plural in form, it takes singular verbs, right? So maybe the best way to explain this would be with English terms that, that are also quirky. Um, English terms like fish or sheep or deer. If I'm talking about the sheep, am I talking about one sheep or a flock of sheep? Well, you don't know until I talk a little bit more about it. Because sheep can be singular. The sheep turned his head. Well, that's singular, right? His head kind of tells you, okay, it's one sheep turned his head, okay? Or if I say the sheep turned their heads, ah, okay, there's more than one sheep there. But we use the same word, whether it's singular or plural, and we need verbs and other things to, to clue us in. So it's the same thing with Elohim. If we say Elohim is angry with Israel, then that's clearly singular, that's clearly God, the Lord God of Israel. But if we say Elohim, the Elohim are, well, that's plural. The gods of the nations are false gods. The gods of the nations are useless. So if we say the gods are, then that's plural. If we say God is, or I will bring you back, or anything that's singular. So you see the difference? All right. And so we're okay with God 
with, with more than one Elohim, with more than one El, all right? The other Elo- Elohim, besides God, are angels, clearly. They are created beings themselves. They are not eternal. They are not I am. They are not, there's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that never had a beginning, will never have an end. There's only one eternal God. These other Elohim all had a creation day. They all had a beginning. We want to be clear on that as well. So the Jews were not polygamous, uh, not polygamous, they were not polytheists, okay? Even though they had multiple Elohim, they were still monotheistic because there's only one Yahweh Elohim. There's only one Lord God. There's only one eternal I Am. All these other gods were created. Are we clear on that? And specifically, we can call them angels if we want to. And the author of Hebrews wants to. He calls them angels. And in fact, the Septuagint translated it the same way. We don't, the Septuagint is not God-breathed and inspired, but Hebrews is. And so that's our commentary. That's our understanding. So when it says, you made him a little lower than the gods, theologically, this is what's happening here. Because remember, when Satan rebelled, what was he doing? He was demanding his own promotion. <laughs> he didn't like where he was. He said, I will, I will, I will, five times. And everyone was self-exaltation. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high God. Okay? By the way, do you ever think about how the term most high God demands that there have to be other gods? If there aren't other gods, then calling myself the most high God when there's no other gods is a bit... Um, misleading or flaky or sarcastic. I mean, if you're the only one, it's like when I made my head waiter name tag all those years ago. I made myself a head waiter name tag because I was the only waiter. There were 17 waitresses and me, all right? And some of them have been there years and years, longer than I've been there. But I was the only waiter, so I put head waiter on my name tag. And but that's just sarcasm and goofiness. God, though, doesn't do that. He is the Most High El, the Most High God. He is the God of gods. So if there aren't other gods, that would make him the God of nothing, right? But he's the God of gods. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And so all those other gods, they are angelic beings, spirit beings. They themselves were created. They are the highest of all the created beings. And they are the beings that they themselves exercise divinity, They exercise a divine power that the lower rank angels cannot exercise. So it speaks to their power. All right. And so that's what we're dealing with there. Now, back to Hebrews then. The um, made him for a little while lower than the angels. So the answer to the angelic conflict, how does God resolve it when one third of the angels rebelled? When Satan and one third of the angels are still on the mission they're on to exalt themselves above God. What does he do? He comes down not just to their level. He condescends below their level. Isn't that beautiful? He condescends below that level. So as we draw it out, I like to do this, as we draw it out, we, um, let me make a new one of these, because that was from last week. New one. How do I make a new one? There we go. So God angels, and their rebellion was to self-promote, to go above. And of course, man, we're the, we're the dust creatures. We're the cockroaches. We, compared to angels, we are just 
Nothing. We're, we're formed of the dust. We live, what, a hundred years, if that? Pathetic compared to the angels. And yet God, when he lowered himself, didn't stop there. He came all the way down. He identified with us. He walked our walk. Not just as a human, not just as an Adamic human. God could have you know, made a body out of dust and an adult male, and Jesus could have entered into that adult male like Adam. But no, he was birthed through the virgin. And as a babe, he came. He humbled himself. He identified with the entire human experience from birth on. And so the whole point is that he was made for a little while lower than the angels. He came down to our level to identify with us. Only for a little while. Because guess what? What is man or the son of man? We have a destiny that brings us up there above the angels. The angels themselves are going to be diminished. They're the servants for all eternity. This is the, this is the point that Hebrews is making over and over and over again. So I make it over and over and over again. All right. So again, Hebrews 2.7, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. See, had he not been obedient, he would not have been crowned. But he was willing to do the work. He was willing to suffer. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. And we're going to see this. And we're going to see, when we get to verse 9, we're going to see the suffering. And we're going to see what, what it was where he earned and deserved the crowns that he receives in, uh, in these things. All right. But then we get to a trinity of verbs here. Crowned, appointed, subjected. Uh, let's look at it here. Verse 7, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. And you have put subjected all things under his feet. There's a trinity of verbs. The trinity of verbs, crowned, appointed, subjected. This teaches a key point in the unfolding plan of God. It teaches a key point in the unfolding plan of God. It's not the same thing said three different times. All right? Crowned is not the same as appointed. It's not the same as subjected. They're related, don't get me wrong. But they are separate emphasis. And with a separate emphasis, we, we want to be clear on, well, when does this happen? When does this happen? When does this happen? And if this has already happened, why don't we see the consequences yet? <laughs> All right? And uh, you say, Pastor, that's too much work. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to think that hard. Is there a, a shortcut? Is there a Cliff Notes version? Can you just fast forward to the end and tell me? The Bible doesn't work that way. You know, it's like Jesus said, "The ruler of this world has been judged." All right. Well, when did that happen? And why is he not in the lake of fire already? Why, if he's already been judged, why are the effects of that not yet been manifest in time? Because it's too soon. It's not time yet. All right? And so we have this connection between what God has eternally done, what God has positionally done in terms of, yes, he has subjected, but we don't see it yet. All right? And if we can relax about that, then I think... We, uh, we can go further. Yes, he's been crowned. 
And God the Father is the one that did it. But he's not yet wearing that crown on David's throne on this earth. That bothers a lot of people. I think it also confuses our hymnology too. (laughs) We sing crown him with many crowns like we're the ones crowning him or we're demanding that God crown him. Well, what if God already has crowned him, but we just don't yet see it yet in time upon this earth? Because he has many crowns, by the way. All right. So anyway, there's an unfolding plan. And what we see here in verses 7 and 8, we want to be able to identify that 8b tells us, wait a minute, we don't see it yet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see, in the meantime, what do we see? Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. We see that already. We already see the crowned Savior. But he's he's still in heaven. He's not yet on this earth. That's what we see. We don't yet see all things subjected to him. We have to wait for that, for the millennial kingdom and for the fullness of time which follows. So, um, understand God is a demonstrator. God, um, (laughs) why does he do things in such a way that he wants us to see what he's doing? He wants us to see this plan unfold. He wants to demonstrate his righteousness. We have principles of demonstration that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. A lot of it comes in Romans 3. A lot of it comes in other passages. We're going to see some coming up in Hebrews 10. Demonstrations. God demonstrates for his own sake, for the sake of the elect angels, for the sake of the fallen angels, for the sake of humanity. God puts all of these things out there so that everything is without excuse. That there will be no dispute. Every knee will will bend. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he displayed everything. Even his enemies will have no option but to confess, confess that this is the wisdom of God and the unfolding of this plan. All right. And the second part of verse 8. As long as we're clear on that, there's so much to this. And it's hard work. And you've got to compare Scripture to Scripture. And we've got to recognize what we have. For the first time, we have stewards on this earth where our citizenship is not on this earth. Our focus is on the heaven. We are seated at the right hand of Christ even as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's never been the case for Israel's stewardship or for the Gentile stewardship. For the first time now, we have a heavenly people that are the custodians of the Word of God, that are the ambassadors to this lost and dying world. So we better have, we're doing battle with the fallen angels. No stewardship has ever done that before. No stewardship was ever given the armor we're given. No stewardship has ever been given the position in Christ that we have. So we better, uh, we better understand what we're dealing with. All right. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Does that make sense? If, if everything is everything, then what's left out? Nothing, right. By definition. The definition of everything is, <laughs> you know, leaves out nothing. And uh, unless something is stipulated, okay? 
And there's a couple of uh, caveats. There's a couple of unlesses that the Bible gives. Paul gives one unless in 1 Corinthians 15. And Hebrews gives one unless here in, uh, in Hebrews 2. I want to be clear on this. All right. All things subjective leaves nothing not subject, except, of course, for the subjector. That goes without saying. And it doesn't violate the all things nothing um, reality. Okay? All things subjected leaves nothing not subject, except, of course, for the subjector. So if there's an exception to the rule that everything is everything and there's nothing left over, well, except, of course, goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway because it actually becomes significant in the fullness of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. Familiar with this? 1 Corinthians 15, and we've gone here several times because of the... Uh, the thousand generations and the fullness of times after the millennium. But I want you to see, because this is Scripture now giving us the exception to the all things nothing uh, reality. So uh, he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. Right? So if the Father is the one that's putting everything under Jesus' feet, does that include Himself? Does that include the Father? Is the Father subject to the Son? Well, if He's the one that's delegated it, say, if, if I as a husband delegate something to my wife, does that mean I stop being a husband? Or if parents delegate something to their children... Are the parents then somehow subject to the children because they allowed them to do something? Or do you stay parents even though you've delegated something? You've subjected something? Say, if I've subjected the use of the Mustang and said you can drive this Mustang, but then something irresponsible happens, okay? Not true, by the way. This is absolutely not true. But I would then be free to revoke that subjection and <laughs> say, you're not driving the Mustang anymore. Okay? Because just because I designated something or I subjected something doesn't mean that I stopped being me or I stopped, I, I, I relinquished my sovereignty or I, you know, it's still my car. The father who subjected is still the father. So when he subjects all things to the son, he remains the father the Father Himself is not subject to the Son. In other words, it is an exception to the all thing, and we're fine with that. We're fine with it, the Bible's fine with it, God's fine with it, there's no problem with that. Also, another exception. If everything has been subjected, that does not mean that we're yet presently seeing the effects of that subjection. That it can be done as a completed action in the plan of God, in the mind of God, between the Father and the Son. This is what will happen, but it is still waiting for its unfolding in the process of time. So here's the second exception. It hasn't happened yet. Okay? So when we see now we do not yet see, it is critical to identify the church's present reality versus Christ and the church's future realization. We have not seen the realization of that subjection yet. It's a reality. 
but the realization has not yet been manifest on earth in time. Crucial to identify the church's present reality. See, I think this is so important, and we're solid here, but there are churches that so confuse the kingdom that it's not the coming kingdom. It's, it's here now, baby. We're, we're kings. We reign. You know, and so it gets very um, crusader-minded, trying to make this world a better place, because after all, we run the place. And do you know how misguided that is? Because we, it, it, it's not here yet. We don't reign yet. We shall judge the world, but not yet, not now. Now we just ought to be taking care of our own business. We will judge the angels. We will judge the world, but not yet. The king hasn't come back yet. His bride isn't ready yet. The bride is still getting dressed. The bride is still being finished. So the whole idea that this fullness can come in the kingdom can come in, that the kingdom is now, the kingdom is not yet. Jesus told Pilate that. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, at the point that he was rejected, the kingdom of God became a delayed thing. It entered into its mystery state and, and the whole parentheses then became possible for the church then to be called out. So let's, let's identify this as well. By the way, it's only by faith that we can see it. Hebrews 11 talks about faith as the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. And so we don't see it yet, but by faith we we can, and by faith we do. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and verse 3. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the ages were prepared, or the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. And this is what we're dealing with. The world to come is not subject to angels, it's subject to Christ and it's subject to us in Christ. But not now. Not now. He needed his first advent to prepare him in humiliation before he can go forth into his second advent in glory. You and I need the church age to prepare us in our humiliation before we're ready to go forth as his bride for the second advent. So the kingdom's not here yet. Last week we went through a whole string of, of Hebrews passages, of Ephesians passages. I hope you remember those. Um, passages in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Ephesians that speak to the future for the bride. Did you write those down? Hebrews 1, verses, uh, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Okay. Do I give this to you again? How redundant do I need to be? How repetitive. Ephesians 1, 22, 23. It's not yet. Um, this, is, this is what's coming. Verse 21 says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You get that? Are you looking forward as I'm looking forward, as Jesus is looking forward? And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The filling is not a church age activity. The filling is a fullness of time activity. 
the all in all as the fullness of time activity when he delivers the kingdom back to the Father so that God may be all in all. So this is not the church age. This is the age to come. Chapter 2 and verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Yes, today he's showing grace. And today I want to be a demonstration of grace. I want my unbelieving friends to see grace when they see me. But what he displays today is nothing compared to the surpassing grace that he will show in the ages to come. That's chapter 2 and verse 7. Also verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We're not there yet. We're still, the pieces are still being added into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the church age is the age of all the pieces coming together. It's in the ages to come, the millennium and the fullness of time then, that this holy temple in the Lord will be operational. See, right now we're just that, that's a terrible illustration, you know, that un, that incomplete Death Star, right? Not yet fully operational. Okay, but we're being fitted together. Just wait, though. The Millennial Kingdom. How powerful is the bride going to be? You know, think about what little local churches can do here and now, as as individual representations of the bride. But imagine the completed bride, sinless and glorified. Twenty centuries, twenty-one centuries of bride all together serving the Lord without sin. So we have to look forward to. Chapter 3 and verse 21, Ephesians 3.21 is also future. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God the Father is going to be glorified by the church and God the Father is going to be glorified by Christ Jesus to all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Much of Ephesians doesn't center on the church age. It shows that the church age is preparation for the fullness of times. Chapter 4 and verse 10 and verse 13, as we are growing. Again in verse 10, that he might fill all things. The filling isn't in the church age. The filling is in the fullness of the times. But the bride now is being equipped until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's the completed bride. And guess what? Here and now we know Christ. We're going to know Christ in the marital sense. The bride will know Christ when the bride is complete. That's chapter 4, verses 10 and 13. Anyway, so understand this. He has subjected all things under His feet, two major exceptions being the Father is not subjected and... It hasn't happened yet. It's been declared, it's been decreed, but we're waiting for the realization of that to be manifest in time, and that requires a completed bride. It requires a completed bride. All right, so what do we see? Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 2.9, what do we see? We see Jesus. We see Him seated at the right hand. He is in session. You ever study the session of Jesus Christ? capital S, session, okay? When a a judge takes his seat, the court is in session. 
Jesus Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. The church is in session. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the the work of Jesus Christ in resurrected glory at the right hand of the Father, having sent forth his Holy Spirit to be the permanent indwelling influence in our lives. It's the church age session of Jesus Christ. That's what we now see. That's where our attention is focused. And there has never been a stewardship like this. There has never been a stewardship with the victorious Christ seated at the Father's right hand. Before His incarnation, yes, He was in heaven. He was with the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Yes, He's always been with God, but not as the victorious Redeemer. That is for us today. All right? So when Old Testament saints were praying, they were praying to God. God was in heaven. Now the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit praying to God. But what do we have? We have a seated Savior who has taken His seat, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. If we sin, we've got an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. David didn't have that. Noah didn't have that. Daniel didn't have that. We have that. We have the advocate before the Father's right hand. What a blessing. So session. The present session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father is something we do presently see. We don't yet see the subjection. We don't yet see the kingdom. We don't yet see all the nations worshiping in Jerusalem. The millennium is still future. But we do see Jesus. And that's what we identify with. <coughs> the present session of Jesus Christ. This, this gets most neglected. I think it's, and it's the final culmination of what we identify with. When the Holy Spirit baptizes us, right? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. We get saved and something that happens is we get baptized into union with Christ. Specifically, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Christ. And it's that session I think gets neglected. I don't think it gets the it, I don't think it gets the the, the 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 attention, it doesn't get the preaching, it doesn't get the books written, it doesn't get the journal articles. It doesn't get the focus because I think much of it gets misdirected towards a future kingdom that we don't see yet. And because they're so busy wanting something we don't see yet to be true, they're not looking at what we do see. They're not looking at what they should be looking at, which is the present session of Jesus Christ. But we are in union with His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His session. He is seated at the Father's right hand. We are seated at the Father's right hand. That is doctrinally powerful. And if we're not fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle. I think we're going to get disillusioned why did the Seventh-day Adventists get disillusioned in the 1800s? Why did the, you know, all these maladjusted eschatology folks, the, 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 the Jehovah's Witnesses the same way. Charles Taze Russell had all these predictions and they didn't happen. And you get disillusioned. I think Pentecostals get disillusioned. I think people that try to make this the kingdom now get disillusioned. I think there's a lot of folks that try to maintain that, that raw, raw, pep rally kind of Christianity. 
And they need to sing hymns like we sang this morning. Does Jesus care? You know, we live in the real world. We live in the world of struggle, in the, in the angelic conflicts intensified stage called the church age. Satan is sifting us like wheat. That's the age we live in. The kingdom's not here yet. And uh, if we don't, uh, if, we're, if we're not maladjusted, I think, to a, a bad eschatology, I think we'll do better. Um, what does Hebrews 12, 2 say? Fixing our eyes on the kingdom? No. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author or source and perfecter, finisher, okay? And it's not finished yet. Of the faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay? That's what we're to fix our eyes on. He sat down waiting for his father to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. He's still there. He's still seated. We're still there. We're still seated. What a tragedy to throw away our our position in in the third heaven. To throw away our session in his session. Because we want to confuse it with the kingdom now. We want to make this world a better place. This world's getting worse. Scripture promised it'll get even worse than it is today. Don't tempt God and say, well, how much worse can it get? Because it can get worse, and it will. Our children are going to face things we won't even dream of. And we're seeing things today I would have never dreamed of 20 years ago. We got boys and girls, we don't even know they're boys and girls anymore. And it's just all kinds of confusion going on. All right, so fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let us run with endurance. I love this. Let us lay, verse 1 says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The fact that it's a race tells us there's a finish line. It ends. It's temporary. The church age is finite. It's temporary. Our physical lives are finite, temporary. But this is the race that's preparing us for the next. It's preparing us for glory. Just as his first advent prepared him, our earthly life prepares us. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that's who we do see. Now we don't yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see him. Who for the joy set before him. See what he was doing? He was keeping his eyes on the things above. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've got to do the same thing. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on the things above. That's why we have uh, Hebrews uh, 12.2, why we have Colossians 3.1, why we have 2 Corinthians 3.18. Are we heavenly minded or are we earthly minded? And if we're earthly minded, why? <laughs> what in the world? You know, <clears throat> he didn't have to go to the cross and save us so that we could be earthly minded. He didn't go to the cross and give us eternal life so that we can approach everything like the unbeliever does. He did all that on our behalf so that we can live that victorious walk, seated at His right hand. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face... Remember Moses used to wear a veil? We don't have to wear a veil. Moses wore a veil and actually... Moses didn't wear the veil when he was face to face with Yahweh, but he would put the veil on when he would come out and face the Jewish people. 
because the Jewish people would see his glowing face, the, the leftover radiation or whatever, radioactivity of being face-to-face with Yahweh Elohim. And there he is face-to-face with Jesus Christ and he's glowing and that kind of diminished and he didn't want the Jewish people to be seeing that. We don't wear a veil and we look to the Lord. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We are beholding the Lord, but it's as if we're looking at a mirror. Because the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, what are we seeing? We're seeing the goal of what He's turning us into. We see the destiny of what He's making us to be, a bride suitable for His Son. That he doesn't see the sinner we are, he sees the son. He's well pleased with his son. He sees us being transformed. Isn't that an amazing thing? And so that's our description today. Colossians 3.1 Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated in the right hand of God. Okay, this is the application, Colossians 3.1. If I baptized you, you heard this verse when you came up out of the water. We recite this verse at every baptism. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Christ is our life. You know the life that we now live? We live by faith in the Son of God. He died for us. So, this is what we presently see. And as long as we stay fixed on this, man, you'll never sin again. You'll never fail another test. You'll never disappoint your wife. You'll never disappoint your boss. You'll never disappoint your pastor. See, when you're walking in the light, when you walk by means of the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. You keep your eyes on the things above, you'll never sin again because the birth from above, that doesn't sin. No one who is born of God sins. But stop walking in the light. Stop walking by means of the Spirit. Stop fixing your eyes on the things above. Stop looking to Jesus. Start looking at yourself. Start looking at your problems. Start looking at tests. Start looking at the earth. And uh, yeah, you're going to be carnal as the day is long. That's how it works. All right. So we have that. The, um, the present session of Jesus Christ, the right hand of God the Father. The pinnacle of Jesus' humbling was the suffering of death which became causative for the pinnacle of Jesus' glorification. We've got a few minutes left. I want to make sure we... Uh, we hit this. And if I've got to hit it again next week, I'll hit it again next week. The pinnacle of Jesus humbling. So what do we see? We see Jesus. And we see the Jesus who suffered. Hebrews 2.9 We do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. Because of. It's causative. If Jesus Christ does not victoriously finish his cross work, Jesus Christ does not receive this glory. Just imagine a what if. 
when God the Son disobeys God the Father. Okay? It's hard to think in these terms. Imagine a what if, if Jesus fails the Father's assignment. If Jesus chooses not to go. Not only where does that leave us, where does that leave Him? Where does that leave God the Son? Where does that leave Trinity? Where does that leave the universe? Okay? Nevertheless, His obedience is described repeatedly, not just here, throughout Scripture, causative. It is a because statement. Because He humbled Himself, the Father exalted Him. And it's the pinnacle. It's the ultimate of humbling, so it's the ultimate of exaltation. Remember, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you at the proper time. So how much do you humble yourself? How much will He exalt you? Okay? Or turn around the other direction. How much do you want to be exalted? How much are you willing to be humbled? Okay? And whatever degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, to whatever degree you are willing to submit in humility to the plan of God, to that degree then you will be rewarded. You will be exalted. But the pinnacle is Jesus Christ. No one's going to out-humble Him. No one's going to out-obey Him. No one of us is going to accomplish what he accomplished on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And because he did that, he receives the maximum reward. There will be no one at the Bema that receives more than what he received. Okay? So it's a pinnacle. The pinnacle of Jesus' humbling was the suffering of death, which became causative for the pinnacle of Jesus' glorification. John 10, 17, and then Philippians 2, 8 and 9. I love the fact that the Lord's giving us uh, Philippians at the same time that He's giving us Hebrews. There's a lot of uh, overlap of themes. John chapter 10 and verse 17. And here's a verse that bothers a lot of people. Maybe it never bothered you before, but after I teach it to you today, it's going to start bothering you. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, Well, here's the good shepherd. John 10 is the good shepherd. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's a sacrificial love. He's not a hireling. Hireling doesn't care. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep, he flees, the wolf snatches him and scatters him. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. But that's not Jesus, okay? And we understand what a phony pastor does, how the damage he does to a flock, but what a real pastor does and aspects there. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There's a recognition. The shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep know the shepherd. Right now we're praying for Spokane Bible Church because they want to recognize the voice of their shepherd. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. See, his first advent ministry was directed strictly to Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, of course, the church age is neither Jew nor Gentile and we understand aspects here. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. 
Now, the church is still mystery, but it's a little bit of a foreshadowing and a clue when he's talking about a future coming time when neither Jew or Gentile, we're all one body in Christ. But now notice verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Now, this is an aspect of love that we want to understand. Is that the only reason the Father loves him? Did the Father love him before the foundation of the world? Did the Father love him before he went to the course? Yes. There's a lot of reasons. And there's no reason at all. Because agape love doesn't need a reason. Agape love loves because God is love. So God, the Father can agapao the Son for no reason, for every reason. But here is one specific reason whereby a unique love between the Father and Son is different, is unique. The Father doesn't have this love for the Holy Spirit. The Father doesn't have this love for any angel. To which of the angels did He say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemy to none of them? To which of the angels did He say, thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee? None of them. To which of the angels did He grant the world to come? None of them. But to this beloved Son, and for this reason the Father loves me, because, so it's explanatory, it's causative, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Yes, it was the Father's plan, but the Son had to agree to it. If Jesus Christ does not volitionally go to that cross, the Father won't let him go to the cross. The Father won't put him on the cross unless the Son voluntarily goes there himself. You understand how that works? Understand when Abraham and Isaac walked up that mountain, they walked up that mountain together. And understand that it was Isaac who was carrying the wood. And they get up to the top of the mountain and they build the altar and they lay Isaac on the altar and Abraham takes the knife. The father is willing to sacrifice his son, but the son must volitionally be willing to be the sacrifice. Same thing with the father and the son. It's a picture of God the father and God the son here. And for this reason, the father loves me. So no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Because guess what, folks? He died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. He removed the sin of the world. And you want to know what he did after that? Because the Father judged him. He was spiritually dead. He was separated from his fellowship with the Father. But guess what? He took up his life again. He took it up again in victory. When he took it up again, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Do you think he said that when he was spiritually dead? He said that when he was spiritually alive once again. He took up his life and said, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my living spirit. He took up his life again. He had authority to do that from the Father, to lay it down and to take it up again. So this commandment I received from my Father. And boy, that sparked all kinds of fights among the Jews. (laughs) Many of them say, he has a demon, he's insane. Why do you listen to him? 
All right, but there's such a powerful message in this. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. I've got to finish. We're running out of time. I'll just keep preaching until I see Molly. <laughs> Sometimes, though, I think that she delays coming in until, she, until I stop talking. And then... All right, Philippians 2. uh, We're supposed to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, totally rejecting Satan's operation of I will be like the Most High God. That's not something to be grasped or claimed for yourself. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. See, this is the display being found on display as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the pinnacle. It's the ultimate. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Not yet, but will. All right? Not yet but will. Isn't that beautiful? Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the uh, grace in which we stand. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the pinnacle of humility, which was his spiritual death on the cross. And now, Father, the pinnacle of exaltation. And we haven't seen it yet, but it is guaranteed. It is future. It will be assigned to him, but first... He will be given a bride suitable unto him, a helpmate. And Christ and his bride will go forth in the fullness of what your plan calls for. I pray we understand these things, what we see and what we don't see yet, that we not be misdirected. Satan would love for us to start looking at something we shouldn't be looking at yet so that we're not looking at what we're supposed to be looking at now. So Father, uh, keep us focused on what you're focused on. According to his promise, we're looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we will dismiss with our closing hymn. By the way, we're doing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's number 30 in the blue hymnal. Do you know why this is our hymn of the month for October? October 31st, 1517. No one one was here then, but... 1517 was 500 years ago. This is 2017. In 1517, on October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the the Wurttemberg Church. And the reason why we're not Catholic today, the reason why Protestantism took off, the Reformation happened because of October 31st, 1517 and the events that followed. So this is Martin Luther's most famous hymn and we're, we're happy to sing it. A mighty fortress is our God.